0: Welcome to Living on Earth. I'm Naomi. I support this program, and I hope you do, too.
1: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The White House moves to add climate to federal environmental impact statements, and investor watchdog groups warn that fossil fuel companies will lose big when the economy starts to price climate risk.
0: We think within the next five to 10 years, we'll start to see major carbon regulation, and that means that these companies will be devalued significantly by a third, 40, 50, 60 percent, some reports have
1: said. They want companies to disclose such risks to their shareholders. Also,
2: the trials and triumphs of morphing one tulip into another. You don't know if you make a cross what to expect. That's the nice thing that you cannot predict what you get out. Each and every plant has a story. We'll have those plant stories, a whale of a tale, and more
1: this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. President Obama has pledged to address climate disruption even if the Congress won't. So he's rolling out an action plan based on existing laws, including the National Environmental Policy Act. More than 30 years ago, Congress gave the president the power to require environmental impact assessments of the plans and projects of federal agencies, ranging from the Forest Service to the Department of Energy. Now the White House is poised to mandate climate security as part of those assessments, and that could mean trouble for a host of proposals, including new power plants and perhaps the Keystone XL pipeline. Here to explain is Vermont law professor Pat Parento.
3: This will be a directive from the president to all of his executive branch agencies, and it would basically say you have a new charge. When you're considering taking actions or authorizing developments You must take the consequences of climate change into account, and that means in two respects. One would be looking at whether the project will increase greenhouse gas emissions and whether that can be avoided. And the other would be what are the impacts of climate change itself on, for example, land management or infrastructure projects like highways that might be built in coastal zones, that sort of thing.
1: Um, I need a history lesson here, Professor Parento. That involves telling me how this new order relates to um, President Nixon's National Environmental Policy Act, uh, NEPA, which is what, a 1970 law?
3: Correct. It was uh, signed by President Nixon in 1970. It basically says that uh, for any proposal for a major federal action that significantly affects the quality of the human environment, A detailed statement, which has come to be known as the environmental impact statement, must be prepared before the action is taken. Uh, It must be publicized for public comment, and it must accompany the decision-making process all the way up to the final agency decision. And then the regulations under NEPA require that the agency write a record of decision which explains basically why the agency decided to proceed with the action that it proposed.
1: So if I'm hearing you correctly, the NEPA isn't going to necessarily stop one of these projects, but it sure is going to add a lot of time.
3: That's right. The Supreme Court has said that NEPA is a procedural statute. It requires disclosure of effects, consideration of alternatives. But in the end, the agency makes the decision, and it's not required to make the most environmentally- Beneficial decision, but it is required to at least think about what an environmentally preferable approach might be, and to disclose that to the public and to others in this very public document.
1: Which federal agencies are going to have the most work to do here? I'm thinking, what Army Corps of Engineers, um, uh, Surface Transportation Board. Uh, what other places?
3: Yes, the. Army Corps of Engineers issues something on the order of 50,000 permits a year under the Clean Water Act for discharges related to various kinds of development, everything from real estate to energy projects. Surface Transportation Board has to approve new rail lines, so all of the talk about exporting coal to Asia out of the Powder River Basin in Wyoming and Montana are going to require new rail capacity as well as marine terminals to ship the coal overseas. That whole infrastructure from the mine mouth all the way to the coast and onto the ships overseas is going to require various forms of federal permits, approvals, perhaps financing.
1: So the Export-Import uh, Bank has a loan application or a guarantee application in front of us to put up a coal-fired power plant in India. Um, it would then have to consider the impact of, of the climate on that loan?
3: Yes, it would. And in fact, the guidance that the president is indicating will be forthcoming from the Council on Environmental Quality would spell out in more detail what the content of those environmental impact statements would have to to have. What about the
1: XL pipeline, the tar sands pipeline that has been proposed? And already the State Department has had a supplementary environmental impact statement for that.
3: Right. And it's unclear whether this guidance that's being talked about would have any effect on keystone xl because as you mentioned it's already at the draft environmental impact statement stage but the state department is getting an awful lot of public comment much of it is quite negative at this point because the state department has taken the position that the pipeline itself isn't going to have a major impact on the environment or on the climate in part says the state department because even if we don't approve the pipeline Canada will find a way to export the tar sands through another means.
1: Now, there are certain threats from climate change like rising seas. Uh, so would this apply to, say, plans to put a building up, whether or not it might be overtaken by those seas?
3: It would. Um, sea level rise is one of the most visible signs of climate change. As the federal government looks at things like flood insurance in some of these high hazard areas, It needs to take account of the fact that the old uh, floodplains are changing and that the risks of increasing flood events is something to be taken into account in deciding what kinds of developments are going to be eligible uh, for that kind of federal assistance and which might not. What kind of
1: reaction are you seeing to this uh, from industry groups?
3: The reaction is to be expected the industry groups are concerned about delays in getting approvals for some of these projects particularly things like pipelines and energy projects they're concerned that maybe the consideration of some of these effects might be speculative and uncertain they've raised questions about whether this is really necessary if you're going to do the analysis properly it will require time and effort so There's bound to be some argument about whether spending this much time on it is worth it.
1: Of course, one of the reasons that uh, the president is taking uh, this tactic is because any kind of climate legislation does seem to be DOA in the U.S. Congress at this point. How is Congress responding uh, to the notion of having a mandatory environmental impact statements for federal agencies that uh, consider climate change?
3: In the House of Representatives, controlled by the Republicans, there's already rumblings of uh, efforts to block the president from doing this, criticism uh, from some quarters, uh, even at the suggestion of doing this. At this point, I think it's mostly hand-waving coming from certain quarters in the Congress. Whether that you know, becomes something more significant, we'll have to wait and see.
1: Pat Parenteau is professor of law at the Vermont Law School. Thank you so much, Pat. You're welcome, Steve. As the White House puts more pressure on the fossil fuel industry with regulations, activists are trying to hit it in the pocketbook and in the boardroom. Students at some 200 colleges are demanding that their schools divest their holdings in fossil fuel companies, and some stockholders are now calling these companies to account. The Unitarian Universalist Association and the corporate accountability organization as ASUSO have sponsored shareholder resolutions that ask energy companies to disclose their risk under stronger carbon regulation. Danielle Fougere, president of ASUSO, explains why shareholders need to know about what's called the carbon bubble.
0: Recent reports say that we can only burn about a third of the current world fossil fuel reserves without moving into the arena of climate catastrophe. Companies are valued on how much fossil fuels they have in the ground. Essentially, if you regulate fossil fuels, you will not be able to burn all of those reserves. That means these companies are overvalued. There's a bubble, much like the housing bubble.
1: And when you say bubble, it sounds like you think this will pop all at once.
0: Yes, I think it will pop. It may not be all at once, but it will happen very quickly. And we think within the next five, to 10 years, we'll start to see major carbon regulation. And that means that these companies will be devalued significantly by a third, 40, 50, 60 percent, some reports have said. If they can't sell their oil or sell their carbon, they can't use all the infrastructure that they've put money into, what happens to all the people who have invested in those fossil fuel companies? Essentially, it's a house of cards that comes tumbling down.
1: So what's the thinking behind the carbon bubble shareholder resolutions?
0: It simply asks that these companies do a report and look at what would be the impact of carbon regulation, look at their long-term and short-term financial and operational risks, and describe a range of scenarios in which some of their reserves are at risk of becoming stranded and what they plan to do about it. Are they diversifying? or are they continuing to invest more and more money and capital in these fossil fuel reserves?
1: And you filed this resolution uh, involving a company called Consol. What is Consol?
0: Consol Energy is primarily a coal company, but it's a company that has also recently begun investing in natural gas.
1: How big is it?
0: It provides right now about 6% of U.S. coal reserves, it's got about 4.5 billion tons of proven coal reserves underground currently.
1: In other words, if, say, if coal is going for $100 a ton, that's like almost a half a trillion dollars worth of coal.
0: That's right. We're talking some very, very large numbers, and this is just one coal company, and this isn't even the largest by any means in terms of fossil fuel companies or even coal companies.
1: How is the dialogue with Consol going?
0: Well, Consol is a company that is fairly forward thinking. They have talked with us about how they are diversifying the company, how they're actively trying to address some of these issues. They have not yet agreed to actually do the reporting that we've asked for. So they haven't done the analysis of their long and short-term financial risks and whether the company is continuing to invest in new coal resources or investing in other arenas that would be more profitable given a carbon-constrained world. Those are issues we're still talking
1: about. But why is the company, in your view, not giving you this information? Why do you have to go the shareholder resolution route?
0: We don't know that for sure. The company hasn't said, but I can imagine that actually facing these issues is very difficult for a fossil fuel company because it's really questioning the existence of these companies. Are these companies going to be in existence in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? Will they be able to sell fossil fuels? And if they can't, what are they going to do about it? So these are big questions. These are important questions. And frankly, I don't think any of these companies want to address these risk scenarios and put them on paper.
1: So what role do you think that shareholders have in the fight to slow climate disruption?
0: Well, how we invest our money is absolutely critical. Are we investing in the future? Are we investing in the past? Are we investing in companies that are moving on to deal with a climate-constrained world? Or are we investing in companies that are using fossil fuels? They're fossils. So we are moving into a new world. We have to move into cleaner energy resources. That has to start happening now.
1: Danielle Fougere is president of As You Sell. Thank you so much for taking this time.
0: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
1: We contacted Console Energy for comment, but we've received no response to numerous phone calls and emails. Just ahead, life and death on the front lines of eco-activism around the world. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. On February 17th, upwards of 50,000 people marched on the White House to protest the Keystone XL pipeline. There were several arrests, but the demonstration remained peaceful. Yet, for many activists around the world, taking a stand for the environment comes at a high price. U.K. journalist Fred Pierce has just written an article for E360, Yale's online magazine, detailing the rising trend of assassinations of eco-activists around the world. Pierce says that 2012 may have been the most violent year yet.
4: The number of activists logged by international NGOs, such as the London-based Global Witness Group, now reached more than two people per week. In other words, more than 100 over a year, which is more than double the figure that they were logging a decade ago. So, you know, it really doesn't look good. Most environmental activists don't go into this business in order to become martyrs, still less to become dead, but... You know, for significant numbers, that's happening.
1: Overall, where are the most dangerous places?
4: Brazil has been dangerous for a long time. Cambodia has become more dangerous. The Philippines is extremely dangerous and has been for some time. Describe
1: the situation in Brazil for us.
4: This last year, I was attending the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro in June last year. And literally, as most of the delegates, including me, were getting onto our plane, two activists who in the nearby bay, just literally just to the west of of the center of Rio, went out fishing and were killed while they were on their boats and their bodies were found the next day, and those two people were activists in a group trying to prevent the laying of a new pipeline for uh, natural gas and a new refinery that they believed would disrupt fishing. They were part of a a group representing local fishing communities trying to prevent these industrial developments.
1: What happened to them, exactly?
4: Uh, Well, one of them was found lashed to his boat. Um, and washed up on the shore the following morning, another one had been strangled. These were uh, you know, clearly brutal murders. The precise circumstances are unclear, and certainly the people who did it um, is unclear. But we know who they were. We know what their political activism was. We know they went to sea, and we know that their bodies wound up dead.
1: And what about the Philippines?
4: There have been uh, a number of cases of priests in the Catholic Church, quite prominent in social activism, a number of those who've been killed in recent years. Most recently, a civil servant who was active against a hydroelectric dam project in the uh, southern island of Mindanao in the Philippines, who was simply gunned down by somebody on a motorbike after he'd just come back from... A village that was engaged in the protests against the dam again one, one doesn 't know who who did it, and there 's no sign of the police finding a culprit, but it was an area where there had been quite a lot of local tension, and where a local military brigade had been active in the area and interviewing um, and arresting people who they regarded clearly as criminals, though the local activists in the area say they were simply engaged in opposing a controversial dam project which would have flooded their villages.
1: What about Cambodia?
4: There have been a number of cases in Cambodia, and activists say that there's been an upsurge of attacks of various sorts on environmental activists and one prominent death. The big issue there is illegal logging. There's a great deal of illegal logging going on in the surviving forests of Cambodia, and people are making a great deal of money out of it. Uh, One activist called Chatwati, who'd uh, worked for Global Witness and a number of other international NGOs, he was taking journalists from Cambodian capital Phnom Penh to look for illegal loggers, and they found some in the remote west of the country, and those loggers appeared to be being supported or defended, one doesn't quite know, by government soldiers or possibly security people. At any rate, they stumbled on these this illegal, what appear to be illegal loggers in the forest. And before they knew where they were, what he had been shot dead, the two journalists on the trip had run into the forests fleeing for their lives. And it appears that somebody from the security services had shot dead the activists, and a forest ranger in turn shot dead the uh, security person. All that's to some extent conjecture, because no case has ever come to court. But the result, at any rate, is that the activist wound up dead. Um, That's set a chill through much environmental and social activism in Cambodia because, you know, very clearly other people don't want to find themselves in that situation.
1: Why do you think it's worse this year?
4: There are local circumstances always, but I think at a global level, we're reaching a kind of new crunch about a range of resources. We hear quite a lot about land grabs, foreign corporations and others moving in to try to take over traditionally owned land whether it's farmland or pasture land or very frequently forests there are conflicts about water issues and people trying to build hydroelectric dams there are conflicts about mining schemes prices for many minerals and metals have been high for the last few years a lot of companies are trying to move in on these resources So there is greater contesting of natural resources of one kind or another. There was a case in Mexico where an entire extended family or almost an entire extended family of some 20 people active against loggers and drug gangs in the the mountains of western Mexico were gunned down by various different people over a period of three or four years for trying to protect their forest lands. So you get these very difficult circumstances where conflicts rapidly turn to violence. And while one would not say that the activists are never at fault in any regard, some of them probably do have dangerous political links. In the main, these are people who are peaceful, who are active in trying to help communities peacefully defend their resources. And they're coming up against people who are really very far from peaceful.
1: So at the end of the day, what do you think can be done to better protect environmental activists around the world?
4: I think we need to make a fuss when these things happen. The real danger is if people perpetrating these things, taking violent action against legitimate activist activity or just plain grassroots movements, if they think they can do this with impunity, they have to know that even if... They're not brought to book. There will be international concern that NGOs in Washington and London and uh, you know, Rio de Janeiro or wherever it is, will make waves, we'll start asking questions. And if we as outsiders do that, it will certainly make it more difficult for the local authorities, governments, police forces to kind of walk away and pretend that nothing happened. If we shine the light of international publicity on these sometimes heinous crimes, then I think there is a prospect to make people who are thinking about doing these things much more uh, wary about the possible consequences.
1: Fred Pierce is a freelance journalist based in London and an environmental consultant for The New Scientist. Thanks so much, Fred.
4: Pleasure. Thanks to talk to you.
1: The mention of a carbon bubble earlier in the show brings to mind one of the most celebrated and unlikely bubbles of history the Dutch tulip mania of 1636-37. The flowers had become a wildly popular luxury and status symbol, and speculation in tulips ran the prices up so high that at one point it took the annual income of a wealthy merchant to buy a single prize bulb. And then the tulip bubble abruptly popped, leaving many in financial ruin. Holland is still famous for its spring flowers, and on March 21st, the Kuchenhof, the largest flower garden in the world with 7 million bulbs, opened with a tulip festival. As Ari
5: Daniel Shapiro reports, some of the Dutch still can't get enough of tulips. Ben Zonnevelt hauls out a pail of used razor blades, 40 pounds worth, and gives it a shake. Oh my gosh, look at all those <laughs> blades. Zonefeld holds onto this bucket of blades as physical evidence of the progress he's made. Progress, that is, on telling tulips apart, both wild and cultivated. He's based at the herbarium at Leiden University in the Netherlands, probably the country best known for tulips. In the springtime, bright stripes of color streak the Dutch landscape as tulips bloom before they're cut and sold. But Zonnefeld isn't concerned with the colorful petals. He cares about tulip details. DNA. He's a geneticist.
2: What I do is measuring the total amount of DNA in a nucleus. Different tulip species
5: have different amounts of DNA, anywhere from three to seven times as much in each of their cells compared to human cells.
2: The amount of DNA is not related to the complexity of the organism. Why do tulips
5: have so much more DNA than we do? I don't know. Nobody knows. Regardless, Zonnefeld can use all that DNA inside the cell nucleus to distinguish one type of tulip from another. And that's where all those razor blades come in. Zonnefeld places a leaf in a petri dish and starts slicing it up.
2: All organisms are built from cells plants and animals. Each cell contains a nucleus, so I need the nucleus, so I have to cut up the cells. For me, it's very convenient that I'm not left or right-handed, but I can do it with both hands.
5: When Zonnefeld stops, the leaf's been reduced to a droplet of green slurry. The next step would be to add a fluorescent dye. The more DNA there is, the more it glows. Zahnefeld used this technique to distinguish between 87 kinds of tulips, more than any previous classification attempt. Everything from the pink and white Tulipa clusiana, the tulip. to wild tulips growing in the Middle East and Central Asia. It took four or five years for all the samples to trickle in. And after he catalogued and published the 87 types, he discovered an 88th, a new tulip. He holds up a dried specimen, the flowers white and yellow.
2: This is the picture of the new tulip.
5: Okay. What's the name of it? Uh, Kolbinsevi. Zanneveld named Tulipa a after Victor Kolbensef, the nature guide in Kazakhstan who introduced him to the tulip. Zanneveld subjected its leaves to the razor blade treatment as well. But Zanefeld doesn't just tear plants apart. He also puts new ones together. When he's not in the lab, he's usually at home in his garden. Zannefeld holds open the door to his tiny backyard greenhouse and leads me inside. He loves it in here.
2: It is well rather packed with plants. This but- is
5: really a beaut, I mean it's like a little forest in here. Yeah, yeah, The potted plants are tucked into this room like a tight jigsaw. There's absolutely no space to move around.
2: I think just here are 2,000 different plants. 2,000 in this little room? Yes, and not a single one is here twice because they don't have the space. Each one is unique. Most of the
5: plants in here are new varieties, or crosses, that Zahnefeld made. They don't exist anywhere else in the world except in this greenhouse.
2: I can show you how you make a cross if you want. You take a flower. You just took a little pink blossom.
5: Zahnefeld peels the petals back. He would then dab the pollen from this flower onto the female organ of the flower of a different species. Half the time it doesn't work, but the other half? Sonnefeld gets seeds.
2: You don't know if you make a cross what to expect. That's the nice thing, that you cannot predict what you get out. Each and every plant has a story.
5: He points out plant after plant and tells me the stories, how they came to be, how he's mixed colors and sizes and shapes and produced something new over and over again. And he has even more time for his hobby now, because he's 71 and retired.
2: My wife says, I have too much plants and... But I cannot park with anyone because most of these, I have quite a lot of work involved. I had to grow them up, wait until they flower, make the crosses, sow the seeds, grow the seedlings up. They're like your children. Yes, 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 more or less.
5: For Living on Earth, I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro.
1: Our story about tulips comes from the series One Species at a Time, produced by Atlantic Public Media with support from the Encyclopedia of Life. Check out the pictures at our website, LOE.org. The American bald eagle prefers to eat fresh-caught fish. And in winter, when the upper reaches of the Connecticut River freeze over, the eagles move south in search of open water. To get a good view of these iconic birds requires a good boat and a good captain, says writer Mark Seth Lender, who found both on the Connecticut River aboard the
6: River Quest, and plenty of eagles as well. Under clouds like a lead yoke, sun rises over sea smoke, painting color on the sky. Up the river over ice flows, at the bloom of the dawn rose, bald eagles rub their eyes. In their cold perches, on the dead branches of the riverside hemlocks, in the red raw hour as the day flowers, they are hardly alive. Not a talon reaches, not a wing stretches, not a sparrow flies. This was a rich place once. Connecticut River, salmon and sturgeon, Shad and Manhattan, were racing against the tidal flow. In that time, up where the coves creep down and the river narrows, from salt to sweet, over falls and shallows, salmon spawned and died, while the great Atlantic sturgeon used to glide, sowing seed to the river for a century and more. Silent giant oak and tall pine in galleries along the riverside held the banks upright. We felled them for our ships. Astride the great stream, we quarried the islands, carved them like carcasses to ballast those ships in granite blocks gray as tombstones. We reaped the fish with mile-wide nets, billowing shadows of the shadow of death, and when there was nothing but emptiness, we ground the last of the herring down to feed and to fertilizer for our corn rows. But the eagles know none of this, care for none of this. Two fathom wide of wings spread between them, the young princes prance upon the sands of eight-mile bar. While above them, determined and speeding, the white head gleaming, her gunmetal talons long as a Bengal tiger's claw, there she flies, queen of the air. And trailing behind her, in her gnarled and yellow grip where the scales and the flailing tails of fishes belong, is instead the webbed foot of a merganser, fresh killed, red as murder."
1: Mark Seth Lender is the author of Salt Marsh Diary, A Year on the Connecticut Coast. For photos he took of our national bird, head on over to our website, LOE.org. Coming up, catching up with humpback whales and their love nests in the Caribbean. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth.
7: Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International.
1: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. From The Wizard of Oz to Twister, tornadoes loom large in the American imagination and throughout our history. Lee Sandlin's new book, Storm Kings, The Untold History of America's First Tornado Chasers, outlines the history of tornado science and describes some of the worst tornadoes in U.S. history. Lee Sandlin says his interest in deadly storms began as a child growing up in Tornado Alley when you grow up in the midwest you're always aware of tornadoes in a way
8: that people elsewhere in the country really aren't you get tornado preparedness in schools people tell you stories about tornadoes that they saw when they were children it's this kind of ongoing fact of life
1: tell me about the tornadoes you've witnessed yourself
8: i was in a small tornado when i was 17 years old Uh, i was just at home it was a summer day it had been raining all day And then suddenly it turned sunny and clear, and I thought I'd go out for a walk. And I was standing at the door of my house, literally about to step outside, and I was looking out through the screen door, and the street immediately got pitch black, and every single thing that wasn't nailed down was swept up straight into the air. Now, this was a weak tornado, but it was terrifying enough that, you know, it stuck with me. And the other lesson I took from it was that you can be in a tornado, and not really realize what's happened because they move so quickly, and a lot of the stuff we think of as characteristic, like a funnel cloud, you often don't see it. I didn't see it. If I had known intellectually that it was a tornado, I would have had no idea what
1: was happening. Now one of the most interesting things that I took away from this book was the realization that at least for uh, people who came from Europe and Africa, tornadoes were, Totally unfamiliar. Why are tornadoes such a uniquely American, North American phenomenon? It's a
8: freak of geography, actually. What you need for tornado formation are two different kinds of air masses meeting. One, you need very cold, dry air. And for the other, you need very moist, humid air and hot air. And the American Midwest, where you have air coming down from Canada and air coming up from the, the Gulf of Mexico, are the perfect conditions for tornado formation. And the other factor, too, is there are no mountain ranges in the Midwest. There are no details of landscape and cross currents of air that will dilute the effect of these two air masses meeting. So you tend to get these extraordinarily strong, destructive storms forming there. Now, tell me, who were the very first storm chasers? Well, in the literal sense of chasing a storm, the first person I found out who did it was Benjamin Franklin of all people. The guy on the on the hundred dollar bill. You got it. He had a brief period where he was fascinated by tornadoes and he just out of a fluke, he happened to see one forming. It was a very small tornado when he and a bunch of friends were out riding. Everyone else was frightened. But he went off riding on horseback, chasing this tornado through the forest. And so that's the literal beginning of tornado chasing as a hobby. Did he catch up with the storm? Yeah, He said, he claimed that he got so close to it that he was able to lash it with his riding crop. I don't know. He may have been exaggerating just a little bit there. He got pretty close to it, but it was a very weak tornado and it broke up fairly quickly. So nobody was hurt. He was fine. But, you know, he he was exhilarated by it, and that fueled his fascination
1: for quite a while. In your book, you describe the Great Storm War, and that was a debate between meteorologists uh, over the causes of tornadoes. Yeah, in the early 19th century, yeah. Describe that debate for us, who was involved, and, and what was the disagreement?
8: Well, this is really kind of one of the peculiarities of the history of American science. There were two great experts on storms in the early 19th century. One was a man named James S.B. and the other was a man named William Redfield. S.B. was he considered himself America's first professional meteorologist. Redfield was a much more enthusiastic amateur. S.B. was the f- person who realized the core mechanism of a tornado, which is a phenomenon called convection, a rising column of air in the atmosphere. And this was a major scientific breakthrough. He doesn't get as much credit for it now as he used to be, but he figured that out. And Redfield also made a dramatic, dramatic breakthrough. He was the first person to realize that storms like tornadoes and hurricanes are rotated, which is something that nobody had believed before. So you had these two guys, one of them thought tornadoes was a rising column of air, and the other thought a tornado was a rotation on the ground. And they detested each other, and they disagreed with each other, and they refused to believe that the other could be right. And so they spent two decades feuding in scientific periodicals over which one was right. And it couldn't be resolved because the truth is that they were both right. But neither was able to concede that the other might have a point. And this fight really paralyzed meteorology for
1: uh, the first half of the 19th century. So a little science lesson here. Uh, Talk to me about convection and how it's related to tornadoes. Sure. The easiest way to picture
8: this is that if you've ever noticed when you're looking at a pot of boiling water on the stove, when it begins to boil, you'll see little bubbles coming up from the bottom. The bubbles don't appear randomly. They tend to appear in like single file lines rising through the water. So what's happening there is that the hot water at the bottom is rising through the colder layer of water to the surface. Now, that exact same thing can happen in Earth's atmosphere. The air near the surface can be very warm and the air above very cold, which is a very unstable relationship because hot air rises, just as hot liquids rise. And the result of that... Tornadoes are essentially a kind of a safety valve mechanism by which very, very large amounts of hot air at the surface move very, very quickly through the cold air into the upper air. And so it's a way of sort of restoring atmospheric equilibrium.
1: It's funny you call it a safety valve. I don't think anyone would think much of now, a No, if are around day. the surface,
8: no, no, they're they're horrible. But it is true that almost everything in nature tends to look for equilibrium. And that's a way of restoring equilibrium to a violently unstable situation.
1: Talk to me about James Espy. He comes across as a particularly interesting figure in your book.
8: Yeah, he was the first
1: celebrity meteorologist. You write that he actually thought he could control the weather. I mean, what
8: was his idea? Well, he thought storms formed because hot air rose from the surface into cold air aloft and that the moisture in the hot air would shed out and fall as rain. Now, that is, in fact, exactly correct. But he drew a strange consequence from that because he thought, if that's true and you really wanted to get hot air rising into cold air, what would you do? You'd build a fire. And if you built a big enough fire, you could create storms over a very large amount of the country. He was convinced that if they built fires all through America, they could control the weather. And he was quite serious about this. He worked out maps as to where the fires should all be set. And they would be burning permanently. He said it would cure, it would permanently end droughts in America. It would let people control where the rain would fall and where it wouldn't. And he thought this would be, in one stroke, uh, we could remake the entire American landscape using this method. And the odd thing about this story is that everybody then just assumed he was nuts. No one took the idea seriously. But he wasn't technically wrong. Very large fires, this is, this is not really well known, but very, very large intense fires do create thunderstorms. Uh, what he didn't realize is that even though you could create storms that way, they would be inherently unstable. And there was also just a basic problem that he refused to think through, which is that the worst thing you want to do in a drought
1: area is build a really big fire. In your book, you write that fire can trigger a tornado, and you tell us the story of the Peshtigo Fire Tornado of 1871. Yes. The Peshtigo Tornado, Fire Tornado, is
8: one of the most catastrophic weather events on record. It was a storm that formed at the heart of a immense forest fire in northern Wisconsin. And at the heart of the fire, this column of air seems to have formed into a tornado, and the tornado was so intense that it started drawing the flames up of the fire into itself. And it moved through the forest as this titanic column of flame. Came over the town of Pishtigo and destroyed it almost instantly. It tore full steam engines, rail engines, off the tracks and smashed them in midair. It blew up every house and every structure that it came across. They went instantly up in flames. 1,500 people died and the survivors, the only survivors, had plunged themselves into the river and stayed submerged as the tornado passed directly overhead. It was an absolutely catastrophic
1: event. Now, as the National Weather Service gets going, tornado prediction becomes extremely controversial. Why?
8: Well, there were two reasons. One, I think, was a good reason, and one was not so good. The good reason was that tornado prediction was a very crude science then, and people believed that predicting tornadoes would cause panics that could be worse than the actual tornadoes. The other reason was that the Weather Service was being pressured by business interests and real estate people in the Midwest who did not want the idea spread that tornadoes were a real problem. So, they were pressured to underreport tornadoes. In fact, for a long time, for several decades, the Weather Service banned its forecasters from mentioning the word tornado.
1: We have tornado warnings today. What changed?
8: Well, what's changed specifically is that after World War II, the Air Force came up with a method of predicting tornadoes that they were keeping to themselves. It really was very crude technology. All they actually had to work with were um, reports from weather spotters and from other weather stations, and a radar which they had salvaged from a World War II vintage bomber. Uh, They tried to get the National Weather Service interested in it, but they wouldn't do it, and the news got out sort of through underground channels. What would happen is that when they had these tornado forecasts issued, People on Air Force bases would call their relatives, who were civilians, and tell them about the warnings. And gradually, through Oklahoma and Texas in, in the early 50s, the word spread that the Air Force had the secret tornado predicting facility. And there were congressional hearings about that. And that led to the National Weather Service lifting their tornado ban.
1: Now, to this day, tornadoes remain, of course, dangerous and difficult to predict. Think of Joplin, Missouri. Yeah. 2011, uh, that tornado killed more than, what, 160 people? Yeah, it did. The thing about
8: that tornado that is, in some ways, the most alarming is that the weather system, prediction system as it exists now, worked very well. They had a lot of lead time. They had a lot of warning and people still either didn't believe it or ignored it until the tornado was right on top of them and also another factor which is a, a growing problem in the midwest is that the midwest is getting very heavily built up and most of the new residential construction has nothing that would serve as a good tornado shelter no basements no interior closets no storm cellars people are essentially building pretending that tornadoes don't exist And so in Joplin, even people who wanted to take shelter often couldn't find any shelter to take. So it feels in some ways like we're going backwards with tornado preparedness. So what are the myths that still persist about tornadoes? Certainly when I was a kid, everything they told us in school about tornadoes was wrong. They told us to hide in the southwest corner of the basement. That was a famous one when I was a child. They told us to open windows when tornadoes approached because there was a vacuum at the center of the funnel and the air pressure inside the building would push outward and would cause your house to explode. Now, that idea is completely false and dated back to the 19th century and nobody had ever examined it.
1: And what other myths do we have about tornadoes?
8: Uh, That tornadoes don't go into cities, which is false, that they can't cross rivers, that they won't go up and down hills, these are all ideas that are very dangerous to trust. So how much tornado chasing do you do now? Well, I don't do any now, and I've only done a little mostly on an amateur level um, back when I was younger. But, you know, it's becoming a huge, huge industry now. A tornado chaser once told me that The biggest danger from tornado chasing isn't the tornado itself. It's getting rear-ended by another tornado chaser. It's almost like a spectator sport. And if you look at YouTube, there's a whole vast genre of amateur video of tornadoes. They actually call it torn porn. What effect is uh, climate change having on tornadoes? Ah, well, that is the big question. And I'm afraid the answer is nobody knows. Um... Tornadoes don't appear to be growing more prevalent. It's just our detection systems are growing more prevalent. But, you know, climate change means the atmosphere is becoming more unstable. And since tornadoes are the product of instability, it's at least possible that what's going to happen is we're going to be seeing more tornado outbreaks. But no one knows that for sure yet. We're just going to have to wait and see. What lessons do you want people
1: to take away from your book?
8: I think that one of the things that I would think would be the best lesson is that we think we have a handle on the weather, and the weather still has a lot of surprises. Things like tornadoes may turn out to be inherently uncontrollable and unpredictable. We have a tendency to believe sooner or later we will get control of all of the phenomena of the Earth,
1: and I don't think that's really ever going to happen. Lee Sandlin's book is called Storm Kings, The Untold History of America's First Tornado Chasers. Thanks so much, Lee. This has been a pleasure. Each year, humpback whales migrate. Some traveling as much as 16,000 miles round-trip. They spend their summers in nutrient-rich cold waters where they feast on krill and small fish. And then for the winter, the humpbacks head to warm tropical waters where they cozy up to mate and give birth. Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom recently found the whales delighting tourists just offshore in the Dominican Republic.
9: Some 50 visitors from around the world lean over the rail of the whale-watching boat Porta They scan the clear blue waters of the Caribbean Sea, searching for humpback whales.
3: Oh, there he is
5: right there. Right there, he's up.
6: you see the whale? Yeah. Maybe it's a she, actually. Oh, right there.
5: Oh,
9: beautiful. There are three separate populations of humpbacks worldwide. One group lives in the southern hemisphere, another in the Pacific Ocean, and a third in the Atlantic Ocean. And the three populations never meet. The North Atlantic group feeds in the Gulf of Maine, or off the coast of Greenland and Norway. But almost all of them come
10: here, to the Dominican Republic, to mate or give birth. It makes them Dominican citizens. They're born here, they hold Dominican passports, they go north to feed, they always come back to the country where they were born. Kim Bedall is a marine mammal specialist.
9: She's been studying
10: humpback whales for 30
9: years here in the Dominican Republic
10: they do not eat here for five to six months every year so they're living on a stored layer of body fat that they've accumulated in their northern feeding grounds baby humpback whales are drinking 200 liters of milk every day and growing at 100 pounds daily and a mother is producing all that milk and she's not feeding herself so a female humpback whale will lose about 25 percent of her total body weight the winter she gives birth No one knows for sure
9: why the North Atlantic humpbacks choose the Dominican Republic for their nursery, but Bedal has
10: a theory. This is probably the closest, most appropriate place where the entire population can mix. Uh, The mother might be a whale that feeds in the Gulf of Maine, and the father might be a whale that feeds in Norway. And that guarantees a genetic difference in order to uh, produce healthy offspring.
9: A hydrophone the crew dropped into the water records the sounds of a lone male humpback trying to sweet-talk a female. There are actually more humpbacks in Dominican waters now than just a few decades ago. Since 1966, the population has risen from roughly 1,000 individuals to 16,000. North Atlantic humpbacks are no longer considered endangered, but Kim Bedall says that doesn't mean
10: they're safe. Humpback whales are coastal animals. This brings them into contact with human activity. So if you combine aboriginal whaling with entanglements in fishing gear, ship strikes, global warming, contamination of their feeding areas and their reproductive areas, there's a lot of threats to humpback whales in all of the world's oceans.
9: Of all the humpbacks in the world's oceans, the Dominican group is arguably the best protected.
10: Our National Marine Mammal Sanctuary here in the Dominican Republic is sister sanctuary to Stellwagen Bank National Marine Mammal Sanctuary off the coast of Boston. So we're protecting them here in their reproductive area and then off the coast of Boston in one of their feeding areas. And
9: that's where all those whales are heading now, to feast on krill in the cold, food-rich waters of the North Atlantic. For Living on Earth, I'm Bobby Bascom in Samaná, Dominican Republic.
1: Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Kainat Khan. Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, Jennifer Marquis, and Gabriella Romano all helped to make our show. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison lierish composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth.
7: I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. Stonyfield invites you to Just Eat Organic for a Day. Details at justeatorganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Go Forward Fund and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at paxworld.com. Pax World, for tomorrow. P-R-I.